Battle English at WeSpeakEnglish.com, where the pen is mightier and the language is the true battleground. There will be three rounds. Round one is Critique Combat. Round two is the Grammar Gauntlet. Round three is the Lesson Showdown. Remember, this is a fun, friendly, educational battle. Discussion of topics, questions, and answers is encouraged. And for everyone watching at home, you can learn more about Battle English at WeSpeakEnglish.com. In today's battle, we have Jeff, a.k.a. Fluent American, a.k.a. The Flutenant, taking on Daniel Thunder from Down Under. The judges of today's battle are Jennifer from English with Jennifer and Christopher Huntley, Chris Americos. Critique Combat. Now let's start round one. In this round, we'll show you short clips from YouTube videos, and you need to identify mistakes, correct errors, and explain how the topic could have been taught better or improved. Remember, points will be awarded for correctly identifying and correcting mistakes and for insightful and constructive critiques. But, you know, if I was, you know, for every inch taller I would have been, my life would have been 30% better. And so things worked out great at 5'8", but at 6'1", I would have taken over for Conan. Um, so, yeah, I, I had trouble with that one, Chris. I couldn't find um, a mistake there, unfortunately, sorry to say. He, he repeated himself, um, but I couldn't find an exact grammar mistake, unfortunately. Okay. Maybe sorry you have other, comment, other commentary on the video or, or something. He said it really quickly, uh, uh, the words together. Um, he said, I had been, and he said, you know, um, but unfortunately he said it very quickly, but I couldn't uh, see any grammar mistakes there, unfortunately, yeah. All right, Jeff, do you wanna add anything to this? Yeah, I mean, I think, so he's getting into some hypothetical territory, right? He's basically saying something like in, an unreal past conditional that's basically what he's doing kind of playing around with so that repetition of like if i would have like if i would have been then if i would have been kind of things like that and it's hard because i don't i don't want to say that's necessarily a mistake because i think situations like that you hear native speakers is my wife around <laughs> like my, <laughs> this is a mistake that native speakers make all the time with like unreal past conditionals. So I think it's like, hey, are you doing more prescriptive grammar? Are you doing more descriptive grammar? Um, similar to that too, he, he starts and he corrects himself. Like he says, if I was, and then he, then he says, if I had been. So, I mean, again, it's like, how grammatical do you want to go? If we're going textbook grammar, because then if like, if I was, then yeah, that's not technically going to fly. You, you would want if I were, but I, I would personally kind of feel bad dinging that because that's how people talk. What do you think, Jennifer? I'm going to give it to you both, but of course I have to split hairs here. You're right. You know, when we get into that hypothetical territory, I mean, there's what the rules say and then there's what happens. And I like the language about playing around. That's what we do. So we do try to stick to standard grammar, but there's a lot of play area. Um, the fact that Daniel's saying, you know, there, what is, what's the mistake? Yeah, a lot of people just perceive it as correct. We know what the intended meaning is. And so communication is successful. But if you start picking it apart, you're like, maybe he could have said that maybe he should have said that so the would have been would have been repetition is a bit awkward but it still conveys his message so i would say technically i would also avoid saying incorrect 
or wrong. It works. It, it's acceptable. Um, could he have phrased it differently? Yes. Um, if I had been taller, it could have been different. It would have been different. So I like the labels that Jeff pulled into this. So if we really want to start talking about what we're looking at, we're looking at conditionals, hypothetical, unreal, counterfactual statements. So I like both of your responses, but Jeff, I appreciate that you're tackling um, with terms. <laughs> but not necessarily giving it to like, hey, let's go Just prescriptive. Like, the reality, yeah. both all of us here agree that, you know, descriptive grammar is going to win out in the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great response, both you guys. All yeah. right, let's move on to the second video clip. This is a video clip from a teacher who's a non-native speaker of the language who is teaching a grammar point and you can analyze it in whichever way you want. You know, some of these clips have mistakes, you might say, or some of them don't have mistakes and we're just analyzing the speech, right? So you haven't previously thought about it. You haven't planned it. Just somebody's talking about a party and you're like, oh, I'll go, I'll come with you. Yeah, no previous planning. Or the meaning is that it's something like 50-50 chance of happening. I, I think grammatically sounds pretty good. Not a whole lot to pick some article things. Like she says, like there's 50, 50 chance, you know, versus there's a 50, 50 chance. Almost treating it as like a compound. Now or just a descriptive phrase there. So you do need that article. But the big things that kind of stand out to me are pronunciation wise. And we're going for American English, right? Well, I don't know. To me, it sounds like she leans more British English. So, so that's, and that's, that's what I was going to talk about. So I don't, if I'll put it this way, I'm going to phrase some things based on if a student were interested in an American English context, there's some things that I think you'd want to be aware of. Um, firstly, with diphthongs, sometimes your diphthongs are getting a little bit overly tense at the ends. Like, so you hear like O sounds, like um, I forget if she said go, but there was one word that ends on an O, but it's kind of O, O versus like O, O. Some other typical things of Slavic languages. Um, kind of in connection with that point, some final vowel sounds. So for instance, over reductions, you see this on final E sounds. So like you can hear fifth, like fifty versus like fifty. So making sure that your E sounds aren't becoming S sounds. That's a very common reduction for Slavic languages. Um, some of the things you want to watch out for again, O sounds sometimes getting overly tense, say like O, or sometimes also getting reduced to like an A, uh, like window becoming like window and things like that. Um, I would also say the placement trends a little high like it's kind of sounds like she's talking kind of top of throat back of mouth versus trying to engage the diaphragm more and trying to get a little bit more airflow to pass through um these are all things that i think would help on a pronunciation um basis um i do want to say one thing i liked just in terms of pitches in general in american english when you're switching from one thought group to the next in a sentence you do want to mix up your pitches Sometimes her thought groups are a little similar in pitch, but there are times, for instance, when she's describing dialogue, like she's given an example of the party and then she says this, 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 and then you say, oh, well then, so like, yeah, when you switch to describing the dialogue of another person, very natural strategy to raise the pitch higher and she's doing that. So those are some quick things I noticed. Awesome. Great answer. Uh, Daniel, what do you have to add or do you have anything to add? Yeah, I, I agree with Jeff with the pronunciation. It's, it's very off. She's obviously not native. She has a really uh, 
she's correct in the in her explanations with explaining will with it's spontaneous or it could be probability 50-50. She says um, the mean, which is could be confusing. Um, I, I immediately thought that was a mistake, which she said the mean of da 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 da. I'm, I think she should have said the meaning of that. But then I thought a mathematical thing, the mean, a mathematical thing came into my mind. Does she mean the mean mathematically? But I think she she meant to say meaning, but she didn't pronounce it very correctly. Um, she's absolutely right. She's, it seems like she's teaching very well with the, uh, the will as, as it's been spontaneous. It's for probability. It's things that happen last minute. So I thought it was pretty good. Uh, but other than that pronunciation thing, and the mean word, other than that, it was pretty good teacher, good lesson, I thought. All right, let's go to the third video clip. Last year, my friend Danny, and I still want to kill him for that, set up a blind date for me and a friend of himself. That was a lady he was working with. The immediate mistake there, a friend of himself, obviously sounds incorrect. A friend of his, you could, would be the correct phrase. A friend of his or a friend of himself is incorrect. Uh, other than that, it sounded quite good. Um, the description he was using was quite uh, good, but other than that, that's the only mistake I could find here for that. Anything to add? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, Pronunciation-wise, um, really helpful that he put up the subtitles because you see things, for instance, Danny, Danny becoming Danny. Um, so, so we've got some vowel things confusion with that ass sound link with the nasal so like dan that and there's also some stress related things so he says blind date um which can be a compound noun so sometimes you get the stress on blind but i think the more frequent way you hear that is honestly with the stress more on date like i have to go on a blind date with someone so there's some stress things there um in addition to that uh, I, again uh, Focus on pronunciation. I teach pronunciation. Like the, the things they're saying out to me are especially pronunciation based. Like his his pitch is very clear. He is reading. First of all, it's very clear he's reading. So some of this is just kind of public speaking stuff because what's happening is his thought groups are very disconnected. There's not much joining his thought groups together. So basically, it's like if I talked like this, which is occasionally causing some of his stressed words to be a little bit unbalanced and not be correct. And it's also what it's also doing is it's never giving him a chance to flow because. He has so many stresses because he has so many thought groups. So he's never really giving himself the opportunity to use some of those lower pitches that are much more frequent among native speakers because every time you're going back to those stressed words at such a high frequency, you get really stuck at those higher pitch ranges. So I think trying to use some longer thought groups would have been really helpful and trying to limit some of the stressed words would have been pretty helpful as well. Um, so yeah, some stress-related things, some linking things with thought groups, some mispronunciations of vowel sounds. Um, those are the, the big things I'm noticing really quick. Yeah. I didn't notice that he was reading like that. Didn't, I, I, that didn't strike me at first, but now that you said it, I'm, I'm thinking about, it, I'm like, oh, I need to go watch it again. Yeah. Watch his eyes too. He's definitely like staring at like, I that. didn't notice he was reading either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could, I could be wrong, but I'm, it sounds like it's a teleprompter. That's why I haven't bought, even if I had the money, I don't want to buy one because I, I don't like seeing people's eyes. <laughs> you can see it. Happen. Yeah, never. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, those were great answers. Let's go to the next video clip.
Guys, the next clip is going to be a native speaker. She's giving a talk. It's an ed talk, not TED, but an ed talk. And she's talking a bit about her own personal experience. So listen out. Is there anything that you would question? You ever heard of kids that said, you know, nobody never says nothing positive about them? That was me. So again, this is where we're getting back into that prescriptive descriptive grammar. And I think something that we see is in this speech, we find some like double negatives, you know, you never said nothing and things like that. So grammatically, if we're going from a standardized approach to grammar, that would stand out. But at the same time, you know, I think this is a tricky one because there's a lot of privilege and there's a lot of social linguistics and hierarchies and things like that and positions of power that come into play. So I'm very hesitant to point these as mistakes, especially in the, in the sort of like English language learning context, because the reality is that we already, look, we already are in a society that puts this sort of speech pattern at a disadvantage. And one of the things she's doing too, is she's, it's not even necessarily her own speech. She's taken on the voice of one of her students or another person, you know, who's using these things, but we're already as a society, like in North America already kind of penalized that. And other countries see that too through the media. So then other countries start penalizing it as well. So this is um, a, a very tricky kind of clip to play because it can continue to kind of propagate the sorts of ideas that disadvantage people who are already disadvantaged. Those, those are kind of big things that stand out to me. Awesome. Daniel, what do you have to say, man? Yeah. So definitely agree with uh, Jeff about the double negative. She says, nobody never says nothing positive about them, which is obviously incorrect. She should have said, nobody ever says anything about, um, ab sorry, nobody ever says anything um, positive about them. So she should have said it that way. Uh, so that's an obvious mistake there. Just thinking about it, you could say, again, it sounds natural and people talk like this, but obviously this is incorrect grammar because it's a double negative used together. Nobody, you could say nobody, ne and then comma, never says anything. So, so in a way she could have said, gotten away with the never if she wanted to, but the correct phrase, nobody ever says anything uh, is the correct one. Yeah, that's it. I, you know, in the, in the last battle, the other judge asked this question. So I want to ask it to you. I think it was to the other person that last time. Um, how do you define what's correct? What's in the dictionary? <laughs> it's um, what's correct. Everyone agrees that the language should be like this, these rules. And that's the correct way. Uh, obviously, everyone breaks those rules. And obviously, when people speak naturally in the street, they break those rules. So, but to say it's incorrect, according to the dictionary, according to the grammar rules, it's incorrect, but even though people break those rules, that's okay. my answer. Yeah. And Jeff brought up some other topics, you know, he kind of sidestepped the correct, incorrect labels on this one. And what do you think about some of those things that he pointed out, like the, the, cultural aspects let's call them you know because yeah. that was kind of his whole answer was focused on that so maybe you can speak to that a little bit too i mean like you you did you said 
people speak like this in real life. And if you walk on the street, you'll meet someone who speaks like this. And, but at the same time, this issue of being correct or not correct comes up too, right? So where do we really draw that line, I guess, is, is the question. Yeah, it's a complicated uh, question. Because like you say, um, different uh, classes use different type of language, especially if you're talking about uh, blue color, um, it's, it's a fine line because they talk like this, it, this cultural language indicates, it doesn't sound correct to say this, but maybe the class of the person, it's, it's complicated to explain culturally like you're um, saying. It's a good question, Chris. Very good question. <laughs> yeah, I'll jump in and say, guys, this is not all fun and games. I mean, the battle, it's, it is a battle. There are going to be some very difficult things thrown at you because the reality is we do have to face this. We do have to face these questions of what language are we teaching? And the question is, you know, do you have your viewpoint defined? And how are you going to explain to students say, but this is what I'm hearing. And my friend says this, or I was at a conversation, I had a conversation at work or at school, and they all said that, how are you going to respond? Because what you're teaching the classroom could be different. It's the prescriptive versus the descriptive. So I think as teachers, we have to be ready to respond and rethink, perhaps, are we using the right language? Um, you know, should it really be correct, incorrect? Or should it more be like, you know, standard versus variations, and then what's acceptable in certain contexts. Some words that came up in Daniel's explanation, natural. Perhaps I prefer that natural to something so rigid as correct, incorrect. Um, what sounds natural in a certain context? What sounds natural in a certain circle? Um, there are different patterns that are natural, and but we try to navigate this carefully and give the best advice to our students so that they are natural and effective um, the majority of the time, right? Very well said. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's jump into the next clip. The next clip is of a very well-known YouTube English teacher, but I don't want you to analyze it thinking of them as a teacher, just analyze it thinking of them as a non-native speaker who has learned English to a very high level and analyze it this way. Why in a car but on a bus? In is used with means of transportation where you can't stand up. Oh my God, English, you're so complicated. So you can't stand up in a car. So you say in a car. You can't stand up in a helicopter, but you can stand up on an airplane. So on an airplane, in a helicopter, on a bus, in a car. So first of all, I've never heard of this rule before. Um, in you can't stand up so i'm just uh basically um uh, trying to think about this what she's saying but necessarily it's not uh true because um because you can stand up in in a in a, in a train for example so this rule that she's saying is not really uh true for example you can stand up in a train she said you use in a car because you can't stand up in the car. So that's what I see straight away. I like these rules. I do. And in general, they work a lot and they make sense. But um, there's a lot of exceptions. So she could be caught out there and a lot of people could call her out. Like I just said, you can stand up in a train. I'm in a train. You can say that. But she just said the rule is you can't stand up. 
uh, in a train. So there, so that's a, a a rule with a lot of exceptions. She's saying so probably not the best rule to teach. That's my answer. Yeah, it's always tricky with prepositions. Prepositions are always about exceptions. Um, for everyone watching, just please know, like, no matter what language you learn, like prepositions are probably like the hardest thing, and articles are probably like the second hardest thing. Like, I don't care what the the language is. Um, <laughs> grammatically, I thought what she was saying was fine. Um, so, yeah, honestly, I couldn't notice anything that was glaring. So, I'm gonna kind of hone in on the pronunciation again. Excuse me. So, uh, a couple of quick things. Um, again, we're seeing that a plus n combination come up as a bit of a tricky sound. We saw that with like can, um, like can versus like can. Um, there was one other word in there too as well that had an an sound to kind of watch out for. Um, we saw this with some schwa sounds as well. So just making sure that times um, your, you know, ah versus uh are two different sounds. So just kind of watching out for that, that schwa sound. Again, that's a very common Slavic speaking thing among other language groups too. Um, and then also, um, just knowing that she she does British English stuff too, but I know she also kind of highlights a lot of American English stuff. So I'm going to go in on that for like helicopter, like call sound versus like cast. Just trying to make sure your your ass sounds a little bit more open than the, than the British one, which will tend to be a little bit more closed. Um, her rhythm was also a little bit staccato. Um, there, there's moments where it steps out, but again, I think part of this is because she, she's using, again, a lot of very short thought groups. Um, she's giving a lesson I get from a teaching perspective that happens, but the result is a rhythm that does sound just a little bit choppy. So I would try to try to link things a little bit more with breath, maybe cut down again on some of the stressed words. And I think that'll result in speech that sounds a little bit more flowing. Very cool. Two completely different analyses. And uh, that was really cool. All right. So now we've got the last clip and Jennifer, maybe you can tell us a little bit about this one. It's just a little one, guys. This was a short one, um, native speaker, and it's kind of like a TV show. So um, we'll see if you catch anything questionable or not. <laughs> Here's the mischievous pickle I put them in. The best case scenario is clear. They should both stay silent. From a presentation perspective, this, this feels like a lesson. This feels like you're teaching. This doesn't feel conversational. And the reason it doesn't feel conversational is in relation to just some of the intonation patterns of things that are being given, like the, 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 the is clear, they should both be silent. Like that's not a natural conversation pattern. It's a pause used for public speaking. And it's a good effect to make things sound a little bit more dramatic. Um, but I like, there's a great range of pitches being used. So like even with that thought group, like the, 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 the is clear. And then we get the drop. They should both be silent. So that's something that you see among native speakers is that when you're switching from one thought group to the next, usually your pitch register is also going to change. So whether you're going from a high point to a low point or a low point to a high point, and that's something that he's doing, I think, to pretty good effect. Another thing he's doing, too, he's also incorporating some pauses, which is something that I know pauses have a horrible reputation, but actually native speakers pause a lot, and there's a good chance that among English learners, you actually may be talking faster than native speakers in some situations. So try to incorporate some pauses in your speech. Uh, I like the stress words. There were some tricky linking situations that I think a lot of English learners encounter. Like, um, I think it was like path followed by like an S, S sound. 
I can't even say it right there. So like if you have, for instance, like a path. So that tends to be a tricky thing. So like path. So, so you could listen to what I forget the exact words he used, but you could listen to what he did to get an idea of how those sounds could link. But honestly, I don't have a whole lot to critique unless the goal is sounding more conversational because if the goal is sound conversational and not like you're giving a speech or a lesson, then we probably want to play around with some of those concepts that we mentioned. Wow. Great. Daniel. So he says the phrase, a mischievous pickle, which is kind of makes you think, okay, it's like mischievous pickle. I'm in a bit of a pickle is a problem. So it makes you think it's, um, it's an expression that I haven't heard a lot, obviously. And, um, it makes you think great descriptive, um, word to describe something a mischievous pickle uh, it makes you uh, think about what he's actually talking about but um, from that you could uh, interpret it in in different ways um, basically the way I'd interpret what it, what he's trying to say is um, is it the the problem that was he's talking about is it's um, Oh God, mischievous. So, so um, strife in problem, very problematic. So it was an interesting phrase. I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but <laughs> this, there it goes. Yeah. You're in a pickle. <laughs> I'm in a bit of a pickle. Exactly right. <laughs> the question is: Is are you in a mischievous pickle or a mischievous pickle? Mischievous. Ah, ah there you go. I'd say mischievous. Really? And now we throw it back yeah. to Daniel. If you have a bookmarked um, dictionary there, you could check <laughs> and see. I'll double check it. I'll double check it. <laughs> and you will find that um, what we all tend to kind of say is not actually what's in the dictionary. Uh-huh. Okay. Can you, can you guess <laughs> what most dictionaries are listing? I'm asking either mm -hmm. of you. You actually picked up, and I like the fact that you're thinking, first of all, I like that, you know, that you're talking about pickle. We hone in on the fact that he's using an idiom. Not everyone's familiar with that. So we have to grasp the context and figure out if, you're, if you don't know pickle, is there enough context to figure it out? Yeah, there is. Um, but mischievous or mischievous? Most of the dictionaries say mischievous. But a lot mm. of Americans say mischievous. We don't perceive it, again, as a mistake. Is it incorrect? Perhaps according to the dictionary, but the dictionary. again, mm. what's natural, what what's acceptable. So we have to again maybe erase us rather than drawing a bold, firm line saying don't do that. You have to admit it's okay. You'll probably be understood. In fact, a lot of people do it. So, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well done, both challengers. And now our judges will give their comments and award points. Okay, before the judges award points and make a final decision about who to crown the champion of the battle, I need to remind everyone watching that the judges chose the questions, the topics, and the videos. They have had more time to think about the questions than the challengers, and they don't have to defend their answers or face a competitor. Our judges are simply providing their professional feedback, and even though they are judges, they may not always be right. So always make your own decisions about what is correct or incorrect. 
but more importantly, always be yourself no matter what language you speak. Our challengers are the real heroes of this battle and we should start by applauding them for their valiant performance. <laughs> All right, well, Jennifer, how do you think round one went? Again, um, I want to congratulate both um, competitors, both teachers. They stepped up to the plate. We threw some curveballs and they remained standing. <laughs> they did well overall. Um, I really do appreciate um, how Jeff was careful and cautious when there was a video with non-standard patterns there, non-standard English. And I appreciate the hesitancy and restraint he showed. And because this was difficult to say right or wrong, um, it's just simply not standard English, but not necessarily wrong or bad English. And I appreciate that he was one, even hesitant to speak about it, and two, avoided those problematic labels. Um, so I appreciated that. So I would caution Daniel to adopt more of that hesitancy, that hesitation, and not be so rigid with right and wrong. Um, so with that point alone, which is a very important point, I'm going to lean towards giving another point to Jeff there. Um, although I really do appreciate that, you know, Daniel spoke on instinct, admitting when he was comfortable to comment and when he had some doubts. That's important for any teacher to admit. There were times when both had to say, I don't see anything wrong. Good answer. It actually yeah. is. If you don't see something wrong, why are you searching? then for something wrong. So I appreciate the, the restraint and hesitation that Jeff was very open about how he felt. Um, I would caution these competitors and Jeff to use some of that restraint also when you're critiquing the non-native English speaking teachers, because we want to critique in such a way that we don't undermine what these teachers are able to able to bring to the table. So nitpicking with pronunciation, gotta be careful there too, because is it really wrong? Is it really a mistake? If it's falling within the range of what's comprehensible, I also don't see that as wrong. The goal is communication. So be a little cautious there. Yeah, I really liked how the discussion around round one and really this whole battle mm. was about prescriptive and descriptive. Mm. And I think, it'll be really valuable for us to kind of share uh, some more information to kind of discuss that more because I feel like a lot of people, students and teachers aren't even aware of that. And, and that's kind of the feeling that I got uh, from a lot of Daniel's responses, not that he mm. was like a hardcore committed prescriptivist, but that mm -hmm. had, you know, been brought up in the teaching style of prescriptivism. And I feel like I've fallen into that, especially in the early years of teach. Like that's where you go. You're like, Oh, there's the rules. I know the rules <laughs> I can teach. And uh, so, so yeah, maybe for everyone who's listening, watching, you can just kind of put into, you know, a few words, what is prescriptive grammar and what is descriptive grammar? Sure. See if you agree with me. It's just prescriptive prescriptions, like what a doctor says, you know, here's your prescription, here's the medicine, take it. So it's what the books say. It's what the rules say. It's very rule-based. The dictionaries and the textbooks usually present the prescriptive grammar. You go to the dictionary, it's generally that prescriptive grammar. Um, descriptive is describing how grammar is actually used. So again, descriptivists would say, hey, it's not wrong. This is what is being done. These are the patterns that are used out there in writing and in speech. Um, so you gotta be careful uh, with those terms, right and wrong. Now, 
in the context of, you know, test prep, for example, there is going to be a right or wrong. And we as teachers have to present the more standard patterns because those are the patterns that are going to best serve our learners, especially in academic and professional contexts. Um, and on a test, it's going to be right or wrong. They're not going to accept those double negatives. The subject yeah. verb agreement has to be there according to the books. Um, but in general, even the dictionaries are starting to yeah. loosen it up. So th there is this general flexibility that is growing. And we as teachers need to be mindful of that, too. So and, I, and you know, in this context of a battle, a competition, yeah. I feel like people are pushed more. Yes. You say correct, incorrect. And you know, that's kind of the inspiration I feel like here, because there are so many videos out there saying, don't say this, say this. And like, that might get views, mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, it's a kind of a prescriptivist approach to what's happening. And I feel like that gets lost a lot when students are watching videos, because they might see a teacher like Jeff, who is very descriptivist, or, or we, you know, we would say that he's leaning on that side and they, and they might say, well, why doesn't he correct the mistakes, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not really understand that core fundament, fundamental difference in the approach as a teacher, whereas a teacher who just says, mistake, 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 <laughs> are going to fall in love with that. And they're going to say, I learned so many rules and mistakes, right? Right. But that same kind of flexibility is also what I would recommend we all as teachers adopt also in the sphere of pronunciation. And so that's why as a teacher, again, you're going to have some who promise, you know, total accent reduction, not reduction, elimination. I never promise that to my students. I promise reduction, not elimination, because my goal is to make them comprehensible, you know, comprehensible speech. So you got to be careful too in um, critiquing what is exactly a pronunciation mistake? If it's affecting communication, if it's becoming difficult to understand, then yes, we need to point it out. Their intonation was off. If the intonation is off, there really could be a communication problem. But um, you know, with vowels, there's a range, I believe, um, of what's acceptable and what's comprehensible. So just a little more caution in that sphere is what I would have liked to hear or would like to have heard. <laughs> See, and there you go. So whatever comes out, comes out. And, um, you know, we fall into that troop too, trap too. Did I just say that correctly or not? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I guess prescriptive grammar is kind of like laws, right? Like mm -hmm. rules, like driving, you're driving, there's a speed limit. <laughs> and it's not that you can't break it because mm -hmm. you can go faster but it tells you what you shouldn't do. Uh, it tells it like you have to be taught that thing. You have to learn it. And you know that you know it. You consciously know it and you can break it. But on the descriptive side, it's more like you're walking outside in the heat and you sweat. And so like, can you tell your body to cool off? <laughs> your body will do it. And this is just a rule describing how things work, right? Uh, it's not a thing that like, you can't break that rule. It automatically happens and you do it without thinking about it. And you don't know the exact rule. Like your parents didn't say, your body starts to uh, cool itself down or, or they didn't give you the scientific explanation, right? Uh, so like there's rules in both ways of approaching it, but 
um, instead of saying this is what it should be, and I think Jeff made a really good point here, connecting that to power structures, social uh, structures. Uh, yes. Right. Language is connected to culture. It's connected to social values. Print. I mean. Yes, the language is not isolated. There's a lot of things connected into it. And I think that Jeff was more aware of that in this battle. Um, however, I do um, you know, appreciate that Daniel was open about some of the judgments made, like context, that when people do hear non-standard variations, there are, there are some conclusions that people jump to. Oh, they, this person belongs to this social class or that group or what. So judgments are made. We can be open and honest about that fact. Um, but again, we ourselves need to show some restraint, and especially when we're using words like right and wrong or don't say that, don't say this, it, but having awareness that you can bend rules this way and that way in certain contexts. And part of our job, especially with the more advanced learners, is to teach those nuances that for this audience, for this context, how do you want to communicate? And we teach that flexibility, which is a difficult thing, takes time. <laughs> context is really key. And it's really hard to teach context. Mm, mm. Especially when you're like, especially in an online classroom, because yeah. you are limited to certain things. Like you can role play as much as you want, but there's nothing that prepares you for like this morning. I, I took my mom to the airport. We stopped at Dunkin' Donuts, went through the drive-thru, and I could barely understand what the guy was. <laughs> and I'm I'm thinking to myself, how would a foreigner Oh yeah, I've done that, yeah. Speaking through the machine there, like it would be impossible. Um, I've done that with phone conversations. And I, yeah, this, this is the thing. So comprehensibility, that's the key. And so a lot of the like teachers that we saw, I think they had comprehensible speech. It was clear to my ears. Um, so, and they were teaching grammar, which means they were, what were they, what they were bringing to the table was good. Um, their pronunciation was clear and accurate enough to successfully teach those grammar points. Um, so I wouldn't nitpick with pronunciation there, but when I was on the phone a couple of times, you know, with customer service, it often is somebody overseas. And I think my ears like yours, you know, they've been trained and I'm pretty good at understanding a range of accents. So um, for me to actually struggle to understand somebody on custom with in customer service, um, not even due to uh, connection, but pronunciation, um, there's an issue. <laughs> and so I wish I could help those, that particular kind of person on, on customer service calls, like slow down. First of all, use the thought groups, <laughs> yeah. watch and those vowel sounds. Pointing out comprehensibility and like in intelligibility. Yes. Being able to understand the, the, what the person's saying. I like, I really believe that that's a core element of communication and language learning because if like that's the whole point it's not about being right and wrong it's about understanding each other and communication so from that uh perspective i've now taken a, another perspective that me as a native speaker whatever that means that's a separate discussion right uh whatever that means like if i go to pakistan if i go to saudi arabia if i go to malaysia people speak English differently. There's a different variation and everyone there is used to that. And mm -hmm. so for me to be more comprehensible, I need to change how I speak English to be more intelligible to the audience I'm speaking to. And so I don't feel like it's limited to our students who are non-native mm -hmm. speakers. Mm -hmm. I feel native speakers also have to learn this. That's why we get so Adapting. much- 
at conferences, right? Where we, yeah. the native speakers are the people who they understand the least because we <laughs> like idioms and all of these strange phrases that, that just speak to the audience that you have, right? It's also, yeah, it's not like idiomatic language, of course, that that can be problematic. But, um, you know, the people who love to show off their vocabulary and sound super intelligent. Okay, great. You have more active vocabulary than I do. But if you're constantly throwing out that words and people can't understand, you're not being successful as a communicator. So there's a time and a place to sprinkle those um, low frequency words and, you know, really, and, and not to show off, but again, for the sake of communication, because that specific word really captures the, the idea you wish to express. So again, it, it's having judgment of what's appropriate for your audience. How are you trying to communicate? What are you trying to communicate for whom? <laughs> I feel like there was just a really stark contrast of, you know, yeah. Daniel taking the prescriptive approach and Jeff taking a more descriptive approach. And, um, and so that made it hard for me to say like one way or the yeah. other, yeah. I have to give Jeff three points and Daniel two points. That's how I was going to fall three and two, but guys, thank you for stepping up to the plate, handling those curveballs. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, they I, they both had a great performance. Okay, that's round one. Stay tuned for round two. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel and don't miss the next round or our future battles. Click subscribe now. Grammar Gauntlet. Are you ready to start round two? In this round, we'll ask you questions about the English language. You'll have 10 seconds to think about your answer and give your response. Remember, this round is focused on accuracy and correctness. Try to use rule-based explanations. All right, guys, here's the first. You're not going to know your left from your right in that kind of situation. Your, I'd say here is incorrect. You need the apostrophe RE here. You are not going. Um, to be correct, going, uh, they put it together there. Again, this is natural speech. We'd normally say this. We don't usually write it. Going, you are not going to. Uh, no, should be the correct way it's written. Left from right in that kind of situation, it should be written. Um, kind and then a new word of situation. That's the way it should be written. But this is very natural, um, especially in speaking. And a lot of people say this, a lot of people write this in text messages. This type of uh, speech would be acceptable in a text message, uh, but grammatically um, incorrect. Those points that I pointed out to you, you would never write that down in a job interview or an essay or anything like that. It'd be very incorrect. Uh, so I see three mistakes there, Chris, basically. Jeff, any rebuttal? No, Leslo, your your with the apostrophe re. Um, going to versus gonna. No, you're left from your right in that kind of versus kind of uh, um, situation. Just other possibilities too. You could use more parallel structure if you wanted. Like instead, no, you're left from your right. You could also say you're not going to know left from right, um, or you're left from right, or things like that. Just some other things you could play around with if you wanted to, but the, f the first points are the more major ones. All right, we can go to the second. In that case, I suggest you to talk with the person and try finding a compromise. 
So we have some subjunctive. Look at that. Uh, also some punctuation things. So in that case, comma, I suggest you talk, which talk should be treated as a base verb. I'm going to suggest other verbs like that would be like recommend or like demand and things like that. Um, you talk with the person and try uh, finding a compromise. Those are the big things that jump out at me. Daniel, anything to say or add here? Yeah, I'd put the comma after in that case. The comma goes in writing to be really strict here. I suggest you talk without the preposition to would be the correct way. Although people can sometimes say this in speech because you use um, with communication to talk, to listen, with movement, to go, to travel. So here uh, it works. It sounds okay in speech to talk. But the correct way, again, in that case, I suggest you talk with the person and try finding a compromise. So yeah, that's the main mistake I see there. Um, I think the person's confusing the possibilities. First, I love that subjunctive is brought in because that would be the first option to fix this. But there is an option to play around choosing between infinitives and gerunds. So I don't see to talk as a preposition. I see that as a possible infinitive. The person was thinking, hey, I'll stick an infinitive in there. But what would be the alternative with a gerund? Does anyone know? Just talking. Aha, uh -huh. yes, that is mm. an alternative. I suggest talking. And if we jump back mm. to Jeff, you, who was talking about parallel structure before, then what kind of parallel structure would we have, Jeff? It's like talking with the person and trying to find the compromise. Aha, uh -huh. trying to find. So I'm going to throw yeah. it back to Daniel. I'm going to push you guys a little further. What's the difference between try finding and trying to find? I don't know. If, if honestly, I'm going to be really honest here. If, if a student asked me that question, I would say there's no difference. I'd Could there be? I'd say Chris is saying yes. Well, let's, let's, let's give okay, Jeff a chance. Us, wait, wait, wait let's throw it back Chris. to Jeff. Jeff? No, okay, Jeff, Jeff. You know, it's compared to like a lot of the other verbs, like forget or remember, like gerund yeah. versus infinitive, like the differences in gerund and infinitive for try are so much slighter. They are. Um, so <laughs> it has to do with like, you know, possibility versus. I'll be honest, I forget what the other one is, but there, yes, technically there is a slight difference, but I think for intents and purposes and like most situations, yeah, I don't want to say they're interchangeable, but the, the difference in meaning isn't going to be enough that people are going to be confused or misinterpret what you're saying. Good point. Like Good that. point. That it, There is a subtle difference. It's not usually going to create a misunderstanding, but technically there is a little nuance, right, Chris? Yeah. Yeah, I would say like uh, I've had this now. come up yeah. before, and I usually explain it that try plus gerund is when you try something for the first time, and try plus infinitive is when you use your energy or strength. And actually, other languages ha will translate that as separate verbs because those are actually two different meanings. So that's that's usually how I explained it. If you have a stain on your shirt, you can try using salt or try using club soda. You're experimenting to get it out. Well, I tried to get it out and it didn't work. You made an attempt and you were not successful. So I often think about try plus infinitive as an attempt and try plus gerund as like, oh, you're kind of testing things, experimenting. Little cool. subtle difference. All right, here's another one. It is without a doubt relentless in that the pace is unforgiving. And there is a constant push to go and continue going. 
just looking at this at first glance, I'm having difficulty finding a mistake or a problem here. What I'm thinking I could take out is that and the, and the phrase would still make sense. It is without a doubt relentless in the pace is unforgiving. Mm, this one's got me a bit stumped, to be honest. You know, not all sentences have mistakes. So if okay. you don't find a mistake, you can. Okay. Yeah. Do you yeah, like it? I'm, I'm a, do I like the phrase you're asking? Yes, I do. Yeah. Persistence, continue, never give up. Definitely. Great phrase. <laughs> all right, Jeff, what do you have to say? Yeah, I'm, I'm personally okay with the sentence. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. There's going to be people that write it with commas. Like, it, it is comma without a doubt, comma relentless, and that pissed on forgiving. But let's be honest, I mean, most native speakers don't even know how to use commas, so it's not <laughs> a big deal. I, I'm, I'm personally okay with the sentence. We, I haven't prepared anything for this beforehand either, so I'm just looking at it now. And um, the only thing that really bothers me here is the phrase, in that. Uh, this this is the first thing that really jumps out at me. And that, I don't like the comma there, but um, I, I don't like commas in general. So, uh, but in that, it is without a doubt relentless in that the, like, I would just remove that. Uh, I would remove in, I would say it is without a doubt relentless that the pace is unforgiving and there is a constant push to go and continue going. I'd probably take out that word in. I think we're moving in the right direction of things need to be taken out. What bothers you? Sometimes it's not incorrect at all. There's not a single grammatical mistake. There's nothing wrong with it. You can write it that way. But advanced students um, often have to work on wordiness and repetition, redundancy. If you really want to write at a polished level, um, then you have to start looking at the little things like that. So there's not a single grammatical mistake here. The question is, could it be worded better? Could it be more concise? So there's my challenge for you. I personally feel it's fine. I think it's a lot rather wordy. It's a mouthful. <laughs> it's probably hard to read the first time. You probably had to read it more than once. And that's probably because there's a lot in there. So here's my second follow-up challenge is, could you rephrase it and make it a little bit more concise for me? What's the person saying? Um, it's 100% uh, very difficult. And it's, uh, you just have to keep going, basically. Yeah. Okay. Jeff, Jeff, would you give a variation? Yeah. I mean, I think this case where taking longer sentences, shortening them either into smaller sentences or using things like the dreaded semicolon or something like that, you know? <laughs> Like, is it without a doubt relentless, semicolon, the pace is unforgiving, and there's a constant push to go, continue going, you know, something like that could make it a little bit more concise. The semicolon would take out in that, which kind of bothers all of us, and that is a wordy little structure, you don't really need it. Could we yeah. also, like, to go and continue going is also repetitious. You could, again, and repetition can be used for emphasis and dramatic purposes, but you could also say, undoubtedly, the pace is relentless and unforgiving, yeah. period. Yeah, I'd enough, probably... enough said. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, relentless means it's like it's constantly pushing you, um, or maybe you don't have to choose both. You could choose between relentless and unforgiving. But I, I think there's some redundancy in this statement. Definitely, that was a great example. So... Okay.
All right, here's another statement for you. We wish to express our admirations for your efforts are most commendable. So y'all just keep it up. I think I'll read it again to give you a little hint. We wish to express our admirations for your efforts are most commendable. See, I'll just keep it up. So a lot of different ideas here. So it's turning into a run-on sentence unintentionally. So we do, I think we do need some punctuation to step in. Um, there's also some grammar things like, uh, um, we wish to express our admiration, singular, um, probably comma, for your effort is most commendable. I would personally probably use a period there. Um, so, comma, just keep it up. Though I will say that context would be really helpful here because if this is something that's a little bit more formal, then that last part is uh, leading, kind of trending more informal. So if, if you're trying to maintain the same tone, because stylistically right now, it's a little bit, a little bit jarring because it's kind of jumping a bit in tone and style. So, so instead of ending, so you all just keep it up. You're probably ending at something more like, so our, your efforts most commendable. Um, we look forward to your continued excellence or, or something, something like that, I think would be a little bit more fitting for the, uh, the general tone here. I'm still trying to figure out how Jennifer got in my email inbox. Cause I swear I've gotten this before. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> it looks exactly like an email that keeps coming to me every day in my in, inbox. <laughs> Daniel, any, anything to add here? Two, two things I can say. Uh, we wish to express our admirations for your efforts. After that, I kind of are most commendable. You could, we wish to express our admirations for your efforts and you could stop it there. It changes when it says our most commendable. It kind of drags it out there. If you can make it shorter, I'm, I'm just thinking it would be more effective, the phrase, we wish to express our admirations for your efforts. And then you could continue on with um, another phrase, for example, a full stop there. Um, obviously, so you all just keep it, uh, so you all just keep it up. This is kind of like very informal colloquial language. So um, if I was making a speech, I'd recommend against using that to be, it could turn a few heads, people could judge you in a different way. So I wouldn't use that in a speech, for example. Um, so you all continue doing a great job would be much better to say in a speech, for example, uh, like I said, it's a little it's straight talk colloquial. So I think, you, you know, I think like if we're thinking like written email, yeah, I, I 100% agree. I think the one place where something like this actually could work actually would be a speech because speeches, you're, you're relying on contrast. American English loves contrast. We need things to stand out. So your contrast here would be going from that formal speech to something that's more informal and casual. That's, that's how he's the person presenting can start to establish more of that relationship with that audience. It needs to be done right. You need to write delivery. You know, like we wish to express our admiration for your effort. It's been super commendable guys. So you all just keep it up. You know, you're doing great. You know, like some, something like that, I think can be done well, depending on the right situation. So I'm just a little hesitant to say speech. No, I think, I think in some ways action can be a device that brings your audience forward with you instead of creating distance, like I am the speaker, you listen to me and distance. I love that you guys are bringing context. 
context is key. Is this written? Is it spoken? What is it appropriate for? And if we put it in a written, written context, we're, we're somewhat hesitant to keep that last line in. But if we shift it to a spoken context, um, it could be used. The, the final line could switch as Jeff said, to that informal delivery. Final challenge with this one, the writer could be confusing the two different uses of the of word course. for. How could the person be confusing for? Because there is more than one way to understand what the person intended. Remember, there's more than one use of for. Hint, hint, fanboys. <laughs> what if I put a comma before the word for and after admirations. Mm, better. I like why, that better. why, Daniel? Why does it make we, sense now? The one idea we wish to express our admirations. Stop. For your, for your efforts are most commendable. It's, it's breaking up the two ideas now. It's clearer. And what um, does for mean? Makes more sense. What's the meaning or purpose of for if we use it as a conjunction? Because. Exactly. Like we, we always rely on the and, but, so, or as the common ones. But um, remember that for and yet are a little more formal conjunctions, um, especially mm -hmm. if we're going for that more formal tone. We wish to express our admiration for your efforts are most commendable, you know, at that tone. So y'all just keep it up. So it's possible. Right? Yeah. And I liked how the intonation also changes because when you start to pronounce it that way, then you have to make that like Jeff was saying, thought group, that, that group of words uh, for your efforts, you have, if you don't say it that way, then it sounds like it's the other meaning of for, right? Like for your efforts. But we, then what, yeah. Admiration for what versus for a, as a conjunction, adding on another independent clause. And that we can debate back and forth. We don't have enough context to determine whether effort singular, efforts plural is appropriate, but <laughs> Super. All right. Put on your thinking caps. Here's a statement. While driving to work, my car started making a terrible noise. I had to pull over. Okay, so we have this, we have this some some participle issues. Your um your car, I mean, I guess technically your car is driving, but you're the one doing the driving, not your car. Um, so like um You'd probably have to say, while I was driving to work, my car started, because um, that phrase isn't technically describing car exactly. Um, this car started making a terrible noise. Comma doesn't work, because um, you, you have another independent clause there. So you've, you have some options, which is nice. Uh, you can go semicolon, or you can go period. Um, I'd probably opt for period myself, but it's your choice. Um, those are the only things that jump out at me right now. Yeah, I agree with Jeff. I would never say um, period there, but I'd, I'd say full stop. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I don't see a mistake. If a student asked me what's the mistake here, I would say to them there's no mistake. While driving to work, my car started making a terrible noise. I had to pull over. It seems fine to me. I've got no real comment. Like Jeff said, you could put a full full stop after noise to make it nice and simple, but that's about it. That's all I got, guys. Yeah. All right. I think we're back into that area of 
what is effective communication and you know sometimes the so-called little mistakes actually don't affect the intended meaning you know I, I you know that I was driving to work it wasn't and of course we have self-driving cars by the way so <laughs> maybe we can get into that but um it, you know but technically you know the subjects of a reduced clause and the main clause have to match for it to be fully logical um final uh, challenge here though what if I do want all three parts to be connected in one long sentence can you suggest something I can insert after the second comma? You can just say and, mm -hmm. and uh, the pullover instead of the comma. Yep. Or, or then, the, yeah. sorry. I accept and. There's one more okay. that I would accept. <laughs> I wouldn't accept then. Okay. As a result, what did you do? Yeah, I mean, you could, so would be a common way, especially hearing it. Uh, Cool. So, so or and yeah and i think that's another common one if we're talking about writing you want to have um, real strong writing just remember then is not a member of the fanboys <laughs> so it's not a conjunction we don't do comma then comma and then could work mm -hmm. super awesome well now let's get to the sixth sentence john studies in ireland but i study in u.s Straight away, I see there should be um, the definite article here. I, I study in the U.S. It should be the U.S. John studies in Ireland, but I study in the U.S. And if you wanted to be really correct, the U.S.A. as well. And just thinking is I'm questioning myself if those dots should be there. We call them full stops. Jeff would call them periods. Um, the U.S.A um that's all i can see there guys i'm just i'm questioning if the dot the dots the full stops should be in between the usa that's being completely honest there okay okay jeff anything to add yeah the, the us i would keep i would keep the, the full stops for um <laughs> that's it that's it oh, so like a, as a follow-up what is the rule because a lot of learners are watching and like mm the rule for us usa should those dots be there should we have an article do we always have uh, to have an article? what do you guys can think? i jump in or, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, just speaking okay um so with all acronyms usa the uk um ussr we always put a definite article the um that's really important other countries all the other countries you could you can use it without the definite article australia you would never say the australia the America, the England. So the rule is here is always uh, acronyms for countries, USA, United States of America. Uh, it's always with the. There you go. That's it. Okay. I'm oh, sorry, I know Jeff. That, I know you live in Argentina right now, Daniel. So is the Australia that you know now the same as the Australia that you knew when you lived there? Could we use the Australia? <laughs> yes, yes. Good, good, good point, Chris. The Australian, the way you just used it poetically, yes, you definitely could say the Australia that I once knew. Definitely, you're right. You're absolutely right. So, in some contexts of um, talking, you can definitely. Good point, and, Chris. And yeah. Also, also, like if I tell you, you're like, "Oh, Chris, where are you from?" And I can say, "Oh, I'm a U.S. citizen." A U.S. Okay. So, I mean, Jeff yeah. or, or Daniel, maybe you can explain those things away for us. 
I mean, a U.S. citizen is a little different, right? Because now you got an adjective form versus a, you True. know, we're using yeah. as a noun. Um, but yeah, usually it does going before countries are unions, countries are islands. There's a whole other host of reasons why you want to use the in certain situations, kingdoms. Um, so that's why the United States being a union, that's why you're getting that. So even, even if it's not abbreviated, even if it's not abbreviated. Uh-huh. And so you'd say the same for the US, the USA. Like, do you live in USA or do you live in the USA? The USA. Because it's still a union. I mean, I'll fight someone. No, super. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, no, I'm You've jumping in that corner. <laughs> Republics and islands, unions, um, they all take it. That's why the Bahamas, the Philippines, et cetera. Um, but there's always, and the more specific you want to get, then that's when we need the help of our friend, the definite article. As soon as we start becoming specific, we need that help, right? The U.S. today is not the U.S. 100 years ago. And yes, once we make it a noun modifier, then it, the, the rules change. Awesome. So uh, question number seven. My doctor, who is also my mom's best friend, has two dogs. So we have some decisions to make. Is this a restrictive clause or non-restrictive or identifying, non-identifying? So like to comma or not to comma? So if you're viewing this as the doctor, this is assumed information that your speaker and your listener both know who this doctor is. So it's just kind of extra information. Then you want a comma after doctor. And then you want another comma after friend. But if you have multiple doctors and you need to specify my doctor, who is also my mom's best friend, oh, not the other doctor. We don't like him. We like the doctor who's my mom's best friend. In that case, then you would, would not want to have the comments. So you're left with this very beefy sentence with no punctuation. Yeah, that's all I got. Daniel, anything to add here? I can't say anything wrong with this sentence here, guys. Um, the only thing I can say from British English is the spelling of mom is I still see it. Um, that's the only thing I can comment on. M-U-N, as we say in Australia, New Zealand, and England. Um, but other than that, that's about it, guys. Nothing to say, I'm sorry. Throwing out a challenge here. Who can read the sentence two different ways depending on whether or not we have commas? How does our reading of the sentence or the pronunciation of the sentence change? Who wants to stand up, take on that challenge? If we add in the commas, would you read it differently? So if I, if I have commas first time, my doctor, who's also my mom's best friend, has two dogs. So a lot of times like when you get those little phrases, not always, but a lot of times the pitch tends to drop because it's kind of just extra information. Um, whereas if you need the information, my doctor, who's also my mom's best friend, has two dogs. So we've got the next question. I'm not sure whom he is speaking. Daniel, you're up. I'm not talking about the continent. I mean, okay. straight away, uh, I see two things. Okay, um, two mistakes I see straight up is I'm not sure whom, there should be an E at the end here, whom, W-H-O-M-E. I could be wrong, but I'm just, um, whom is speaking to whom. This, this should be the purpose. To, I, I know I'm putting my neck out here because I could be wrong with that spelling. I'm just going to tell you what I'm thinking. W-H-O-N-E. 
speaking to. They're my two guesses. Okay, so two mistakes. Whom, the spelling, W-H-O-M-E, and then uh, speaking to with the preposition. The other two. Uh, a couple things here, yeah. So the, the whom is the part that is obviously getting a lot of attention. Um, there's, there's a lot of ways you could do it. If you want to sound awkward but correct, you could say, I'm not sure to whom he is speaking. Um, if you want to sound more natural, I'm not sure. The, the most natural sounding phrase is also non-standard by textbooks. The most natural way to say it is probably, I'm not sure who he is speaking to, but some people's heads are going to be screaming at me because like grammatically that looks horrible because who should be whom? Cause it's an object. It's an indirect object. Um, and I'm also ending the sentence with a preposition. Oh my gosh, I'm a horrible person, but that's the most common way to hear it. I'm not sure who he's speaking to. That's honestly the, what you're going to hear. So why, why do you think to whom is, is correct and speaking to is not correct? I don't, to be fair, I don't personally believe that. I just, if you look at like textbooks, a lot of textbooks are going to be like, no, we can't be doing that. But um, yeah, so, you know, a lot of people apply rules from like Latin to English. So they're like, you can't, in Latin, you can't end on a preposition. So in English, you can't end on a preposition. Uh, even though in English, it makes perfect sense too. Whereas in Latin, you, you get into some problems. Um, so I'm, I'm personally okay with not doing that. And then who versus whom? I mean, let's, let's be honest. If we, if we have this class in another hundred, 200 years, there's a very good chance that whom may not even exist anymore yeah. as a form, you know, but it still does exist currently. So it is an object form. It's your indirect object form. So in theory, as indirect object, it should be the form you're using according to standardized grammar. Awesome. Would you guys accept? I'm not sure who he's speaking to. Of course. I'm not sure who he is speaking to. Yes. I'm fine with that. I am too. I, I think again, prescriptive, descriptive, but actually the, the textbooks are catching up. They recognize that there's there's a range. And if we're gonna say to whom, who he's speaking, whom he's speaking to, who who he's speaking to, and then you, there's a range of like the most formal to more everyday English. So as long as we point out to students, it's all acceptable. It's how high you want to go in terms of register. But um, most of us are not going to say whom. Daniel threw the gauntlet for me. I had to Google this quickly. H-O-M-E. I was like, what? <laughs> it is an obsolete form. He actually has a point there. It's, it exists, <laughs> but maybe in another century. I don't know that it's an obsolete form. Um, I've never encountered that, but perhaps in like old English or middle English, it's, it was there. <laughs> we all get to learn something. Yes. <laughs> all right, moving on to the next question. $75 is more than $72. Immediately, I see a mistake there with the comparison. T-H-A-N should be spelled, not T-H-E-N. Then spelled here is like after, for example. Um, just if the way I'd explain it to a student is just um, you do that, then you do that. Here, uh, it, it's a comparison. 
So you need to be spelling it T-H-A-N. Same pronunciation, just different spelling. Very confusing for a lot of students. This $75 is more than $72. Logically correct. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just thinking about it. Okay. Good, good. good. I, I could have gone there on one of those questions, right? Um, Jeff, what do you say? Yep, that's actually the pronunciation, because for me, they would be distinct, but I guess in, right, in some situations with reductions and things, Dan could sound like then. Um, yeah, more more than, but regardless, yeah, you need the than because you're comparing. Um, you need some dashes. If we're getting technical, you should have like 70-5, 70-2, but I mean, who, who actually uses dashes? People are just, yeah. I was hoping, I was hoping someone would catch that. Yeah. yeah, I got you. And I got you. Technically, guys, I would not call it a dash. Right. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. When you when you teach programmers long enough, then they make sure that you know the difference between a dash and a hyphen and yes, those symbols. Dashes are nice to like sort of to add on something there. Another thought. It's a nice little tool there in writing perhaps um i have a quick little challenge here why is it correct asks the student 75 dollars is plural why are we saying is that doesn't make sense dollars is plural why can't we say 75 dollars are shouldn't because we be saying what great money i'd say straight away to that uh, money is uncountable um we, we, we say how much money we don't say how many um with many, we use for countable. Much is uncountable. Money is always uncountable. Time is uncountable. I've yeah, never. But the word here is the word here is dollars, though, isn't it? True. I thought that referred to the same thing, dollars. But is a dollar countable or uncountable? Now you now you've got my head in. The, in a... <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're treating as a you're treating as a unit. You know, it's not necessarily 75 each of the dollars, it's that this one group, $75, it's like a team, you know, the team is at least in American industry is singular. Um, so that's how the view is. And that's why it's going to be treated more as a singular. Anytime we take numbers, things, we put it into a collective unit, we see it as the unit and it becomes one again. So you need a thousand, a thousand is too much to ask, not a thousand are too much. But, you know, a thousand people were there because now I'm counting them, right? So we could approach numbers and things as individuals or as a collective unit, right? And as you said, American English, um, once we start getting into collective nouns, collective units, we generally perceive them as singular. With one exception, right? Police. Ah, then we get into collective nouns versus aggregate nouns. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Awesome. So uh, let's see. The last question here is, please allow myself to introduce Thomas Rogers, the president of Atlantis. Yeah, please allow me. It's going to be much more frequent. I think a lot of times, sometimes people get confused like oh do i use myself do i use me so a lot of times people end up using myself and selves and things like that to kind of just avoid the confusion but honestly this is please allow me to introduce thomas rogers comma so we have some of positives going on look at that so nouns followed by nouns that are describing the noun the first noun 
Um, so you'd want to comment after Rogers. Please allow me to introduce Thomas Rogers, comma, the president of Atlantis. Roger that. Daniel, have anything to add? Yeah, I agree. I'll say the same. Please um, allow me to introduce Thomas Rogers. Sounds more natural. It's more common. The use definitely. So, yep, that's what I have to say. Do you agree that there needs to be a comma there? After Thomas Rogers? Yes. Please allow me to introduce Thomas Rogers, comma, the president of Atlantis. Yes. Yeah. Do you see any other mistakes in the sentence? No. Okay. Challenge, guys. When asks the student, when do we capitalize P in president? Like I sometimes see it like capital, but sometimes I don't see it capital. When do we use an uppercase P? I'm going to go. I've got a little inkling here. I'm just going to go for it. Okay. Um, when you just say, when you when you just say the president, stop. Uh, that's when you use capital P, just the president. But if it's if you're going to continue on, um, it's, it's it's without the capital P. I imagine that has to do with the position. No, not <laughs> not every president is the same kind of president. <laughs> <laughs> How much power does the person have? <laughs> power. Yes. <laughs> yeah. What if oh. I say, Mr. President, may I ask a question? Yeah. yeah. That would be a second name. That would be a as, an, as an address, right? If as we're addressing name. them. Yes. Madam President, or Mr. Yeah. President. Capital, capital P, yeah. Capital as P. President Clinton, President Obama, President Biden. Yes. No. Okay. But technically the president of the United States. Not capitalized. No, Without don't need to. Exactly. So little things. Again, if we're speaking, we don't have to worry about all this, but if we're writing, it might matter. Yeah. If you're writing to the president and sending a letter off to the Oval Office, you want to get it right. <laughs> exactly. So what if you Definitely. just said what if you just said president? Hey, president. <laughs> yeah. Would that be capitalized or not? I'd probably capitalize as a, as a name, like Yo Press. No <laughs> <laughs> exactly. right, Even if you're dropping the Mister, imagine if you call your your friends like, "Hey, Crook, Hey, Anderson." We're using their last name, so it's similar to that. You're using it as an address. So yes. All right, that's the end of round two. Now our judges will give their comments and award points. Great job to both our challengers. Okay, Jennifer, how do you think round two went? sentences. Again, we threw in some challenges and we kept raising the bar um, with follow-up questions. So again, the guys were good, um, not shying away. I actually really appreciate that Daniel admitted um, when he didn't have an answer, he was uncertain. That's something that I've taught in teacher training, that you don't have to have all the answers. And this is not where you fake it till you make it. If you don't know the answer, you don't know the answer because you don't want to risk giving wrong information. And if you just give what's based on instinct, that's fine. But then you say, I, I think, I'm pretty sure that, da, 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 but let me get back to you. Let me follow up. So I appreciate that. I appreciate that kind of genuine, honest approach. When doubts surfaced, he was open and honest about that. And I think that's actually a really good sign. I agree. Um, I really agree with you on that. And, you know, the biggest red flag for me is when a teacher says, that's just the way it is. <laughs> that's just the way we speak, you know? Um, Great answer. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, at least say, 
I'm going to go find the answer for you. That would be better than just saying that's just the way it is. Because I remember in my first lesson ever, I gave that answer. And I remember that was the worst answer that you could ever give. So, um, so yeah, I really like that Daniel did that too. And we're all experienced teachers uh, of some years, probably more than others because of my age. But even so, I, you know, I want to even say to those teachers who are possibly listening who are experienced with years under their belt, um, hopefully we too remember that we don't know everything. Um, there are questions that still humble me or, you know, comments, but Jennifer, I think you said this and that's not right. And I'm like, really? It happened about a week ago. There was a comment on a video and I was like, oh my gosh. No, I think I'm pretty certain that I got it. And then I go into my network and I start asking teachers whose opinions I really value when it comes to grammar. And they go to their books and <laughs> we come back and compare answers because I really want to make sure that I can stand behind explanations that I've given to the public. Um, so th this is important. It's a responsibility to answer questions to the best of our ability. And if you can't at that moment, go follow up <laughs> and then come back. Um, that's important. What I loved about um, Jeff here is that he, you know, he's really building his um, reputation and his uh, collection of videos on pronunciation. He's a very good pronunciation teacher, but uh, we saw here that he does have a good, um, very good uh, foundation in grammar and that yeah. came through. And I appreciate seeing that foundation. I think it's a foundation that all teachers need to have, um, no matter what niche they, they choose. Um, it, it's the foundation there. And I love that he sees not just the foundation, it ties into things. So he um, made the connection between grammar and pronunciation. And I appreciate that. Yeah. And a lot of teachers shy away from grammar. They're, they're, they're scared of it, or, or they think that students don't like it or don't want to learn it. And mm -hmm. I don't know if you've had that experience with, mm -hmm. with this, but yeah, I've had people tell me that they just don't want to teach any grammar. And, and I'm like, well, how's that going to work? Like, how are you going to explain why it works the way it works or anything like that? Right. How are you going to give them helpful rules or strategies? So, it, I mean, it, life's not all about grammar, but like you said, it's yeah. the foundation. And there are opportunities to really bring it in to show why it's um, important. And um, Jeff revealed through his answers that he not only has that foundation, he can make the connections and has thought about those connections. Um, for example, dealing with uh, what kind of communication is it written or spoken and also register. Um, he showed awareness of register, whether something is really formal or informal. That's another way to think with communication. Um, when you think about your audience and your purpose, you should also be thinking about your register, how casual and relaxed you want to be, and perhaps, you know, bending the rules, and then how um, formal you want to be, and perhaps more prescriptive there. Um, I think it came up when I was pushing to see a difference in how you would read uh, identifying or non-identifying clause, and Jeff knew immediately what I was talking about, that your pronunciation changes. So when we're writing, we work with punctuation. When we're speaking, we work with pauses and pitch, and he was aware of that, and I appreciate it. It's good. Yeah. And another interesting moment from round two was whom. Yes, the E. I'm like, because oh. when you first said it, it, I was just like, no, no. And I saw everybody's face was kind of like, really? What? And then you looked it up and you said that it was an old or obsolete form. And yeah. I was, I no. 
Yeah. But yeah. So yeah, you just don't think you ever know everything. But that said, um, I think Daniel should give some more thought to how he's going to talk about who versus whom, because that question does come up and will come up again. People will ask students like, well, who uses whom? And lower level students need us to clarify again the difference between object and subject pronouns. Um, but again, with register, we need to explain that, you know, who did you write to? is the way that we speak in everyday English. You wouldn't say to whom <laughs> did you right. write? Um, so it, it's all about register. Can you strand a preposition? Can you use who as an object? Um, and Jeff seemed to have more comfort with the, that kind of a question. Absolutely. And uh, in your real life, do you ever say whom? Rarely. I can't even remember the last time. <laughs> No. The only time I actually use it is if I'm starting an email to a person I don't know, to whom it may concern. That's the only one. Yes. Okay. Yes. Then I admit, because I write letters to the school. Um, when I have to write letters to the school, I follow the format that I was taught way back in junior high, because we did learn proper formatting for business letters, where the date goes, greeting, um, closing signature, and I write to the school to whom it may concern, please excuse my daughter, blah, blah, blah. So whether it's, you know, tardy note, absentee note, um, to whom it may concern. So in writing, register, yes, I've used it this year a number of times. Yeah, I, I can't think of any other situation when I've used it. Definitely not in speech. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I agree with you that Jeff really shined in this uh, in this round, and that um, I, I'm going to have to give him four points on this one, and, and Daniel one point. Okay, I would lean that way, but I still want to um, praise Daniel for the genuine admission because I think it's so important. And to, to remind teachers, don't fake it in this case, when you're trying to give answers and explanations, if you're not certain, be genuine about that. And I appreciate, Daniel, overall, I, and this gets into the next round, but I really do appreciate how genuine he is in his style as a teacher. So for that reason, I'm still gonna stick to three and two. Three for Jeff, two for Daniel. Okay, that's round two. Stay tuned for round three. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't miss the next round or our future battles. Click subscribe now. Lesson showdown. Are you ready for round three? Here are the topics you can choose from to make a video lesson about. Here are two topics you can possibly choose from. How to use the present progressive or present continuous, however you wish to call it, how to pronounce common condiments. And I don't know if I really want to read them aloud <laughs> because that might be helping you. And then the last two topics that you can choose from are intonation in tag questions and how and why to use adverbs in sentences. So Daniel, you can choose your topic first. I think I'm gonna go with, I'm really stuck between uh, pronunciation in. Uh, the tag questions. I like both of those. Sorry, you can only choose one. Okay, okay. I'm going to go the pronunciation. The pronunciation of different condiments? Yes, exactly. Yeah. All right. And Jeff, what are you going to choose? Um, I can do present progressive. That's fine. Present progressive. All right. So, so why did you choose that one? I think grammar. Grammar was my first love. I know I do pronunciation now, but grammar was my first 
real joy. Um, so, I, and I haven't made a grammar video in a very long time. So, great, keep it fresh. Yeah. And Daniel, why did you choose pronunciation? I enjoy it, and I've done it a lot in the past, and I've gotten good results from it. And students have liked it. Um, just in terms of repeating, uh, showing the way you use your mouth and things like that, little tricks I've picked up on on how to remember the pronunciation of things. So yeah, that's my reason. I think that's my strongest point. Great. Now remember, you have four hours to send us your video file. We've given you the address to send the file to. The file should be about 10 minutes long, and it should be your own original work. You can use visual aids, but they must be created by you. No pre-prepared material. Points will be awarded for creativity, clarity, accuracy, and effectiveness in teaching the topic. Now let's see who can make the best video lesson. Good luck. Ten common food condiments that you really need to know. Now, you're probably thinking, Daniel, what are food condiments? So this is what you add to food to make it more delicious, make it more tasty, more spicy, more bitter, more salty. So guys, for example, when you have eggs, you add salt, right? Salt and pepper is a very common one. So salt and pepper. Tomato sauce in British English, in USA, ketchup. So guys, it's basically what you add to food to make it delicious. So guys, here we have five of the most common ones, and then I'm gonna produce five more. So you have to wait to the end, guys. It's gonna get more and more common, and these are the words that are very difficult to pronounce. So I'm gonna help you pronounce the pronounce whoops I almost made a mistake there I'm gonna help you pronounce these words as best as I can so guys also at the end of this video I'm go, I'm giving away a free bonus guys a free bonus that's gonna help you with your fluency and make you more confident in speaking in English it's my little book it's a little surprise so you have to wait to the end guys but first let's start okay for the number one what do we have for number one? We have, how do you pronounce this, guys? This is the longest one. Ready, let's do it together. Worcestershire. 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 Can you repeat with me? Worcestershire. Here, I pronounce the words very clearly. Worcestershire. Pronounce with me at home now. Worcestershire. Worcestershire. Worcestershire sauce. Worcestershire sauce. An example, if you're at a friend's house, do you have any Worcestershire sauce? This is a common sauce, guys, that you add to meat. You can add it to fries. You can add it to so, much diff so many different types of foods, especially um, steak is a very common one. It's to make it more flavorsome, basically, and give you that bit of spice, extra kick. That is Worcestershire sauce, guys. Okay, that's a difficult one. Number two, let's do number two together. Tabasco. Can you repeat with me, guys? Tabasco. At home now? Tabasco. Tabasco sauce. Very similar to Worcestershire sauce. Tabasco, guys. Tabasco sauce is very similar. It gives a bit of kick an extra flavor as well. 
For example, if you are at a restaurant, I would ask this in a formal way. Uh, could I please have some Tabasco sauce? Could I please have very polite guys in a restaurant context situation? Number three, balsamic vinegar. We've got balsamic vinegar. Balsamic vinegar. Can you repeat with me at home, guys? Balsamic vinegar. Balsamic vinegar. So, guys, this is usually uh, used with cooking. Balsamic vinegar. Can you repeat with me at home? Balsamic vinegar. Used with cooking, and it's basically another spice to add an extra kick. Very similar. More delicious, more flavorsome. Next one is guacamole. We, we know this one, guys, from Mexico. Usually used with um, uh, kebabs. You can use it with different... Um, very common with uh, potato chips as well. So let's say this together. Ready, guys? Guacamole. Can you repeat with me at home? Guacamole. Guacamole. Guys, it's very similar the way they pronounce it in Spanish in, in Mexico. Guacamole, we say. So I want you to imagine now you're in a restaurant again, but this time imagine that the guacamole is on the table and you're asking your friend. I would say, would you mind passing me the guacamole? You can repeat with me now at home, guys. Would you mind passing me the guacamole? This is very polite, guys. So maybe with a friend who you don't know that well, and uh, very polite, it's very formal. Would you mind passing me the guacamole, please? Okay, guys? And now, number five, pesto, my favorite. When I was in Italy, I lived there for three, for three years, guys. I absolutely loved pesto, my favorite. You know, guys, it's green, it's mushy, it's, it's garlic, and it's basically a plant, pesto, it's absolutely delicious. I always uh, had this when I was living in Italy. It was my favorite pasta. Because this is a quite easy one, it's very short. Ready? Pesto. Can you repeat with me at home? Pesto. Pesto. Again, very similar to Italian, but we say this in English as well. Pesto. So guys, another situation. This time you're with a, your best friend and you're at home. I would say, pass me the pesto. Can you repeat with me at home? Pass me the pesto. Pass me the pesto. So guys, the pesto sauce is very common in pasta. The pesto sauce, we add it to pasta and it's absolutely delicious. I love it. Continuing on with the last five, four food condiments, difficult to pronounce. So guys, here they are, the last five. Now, you can pronounce these words with me at home and when you actually move your mouth and practice with me, that's when you learn. Your muscle memory will learn and you, the more you say it, the better you will remember it. So guys, at home, make sure you repeat with me as I say it, okay guys? The number six, the next one is chutney. So guys, can you repeat with me? Chutney, here, here we have chutney. Repeat guys. Chutney. What is chutney? 
So guys, it's, a, it's a, basically a paste used in India to add as a side dish. And they add it to different types of meals, like especially meats, rice, and it makes it, again, spicy, more delicious. Next one, guys, is wasabi. Do you like wasabi? A lot of people don't like this. It's very strong with sushi. It's green and it's very, very powerful, strong aroma. It's even fiery. So guys, we can pronounce this together at home. Wasabi. Here we go. Wasabi. Wasabi. Can you pronounce it with me? Wasabi. So guys, this is used in Japan a lot with sushi and it's often um, given in a very tiny, uh, like a dough even, rolled up in a ball and you just take it as you eat it, the sushi basically. So guys, that's wasabi. And the, and the next one is my favorite, chimichurri. This is, why is this my favorite guys? This is from Argentina, this is where I live. And we often have this on sausages in the park. Sausages with a sandwich, tomato, lettuce, and it's absolutely delicious. It's a sauce with garlic, herbs, and it's very spicy. It makes it, makes it very, very flavorsome. And the Argentinians absolutely love chimichurri. Can you say it with me at home, guys? Chimichurri. Again, guys, at home, chimichurri, chimichurri, chimichurri. So chimichurri, guys, remember, chimichurri sauce from Argentina. The next one, hollandaise sauce. Can you pronounce this with me at home? Hollandaise, hollandaise, hollandaise sauce. This is a very common, like a yellow sauce that goes on eggs, especially eggs. And it's like not very healthy at all, guys. It has a lot of mayonnaise, a lot of fatty um, uh, taste there, but it's not very good for you, but it's quite delicious. It's normally used on a British breakfast with eggs. It's a yellow sauce that they normally pour onto the eggs. Hollandaise sauce. And the last one goes, Sambal. Can you pronounce this with me at home? Sambal. Sambal. So guys, this is another side dish from Indonesia. It's a very spicy dish and it's another thing to add more flavor. So guys, repeat this one more time. Sambal. Can you repeat at home? Sambal. So guys, these are the most common 10 most difficult pronounced words for the condiments for food. Guys, and I hope that's helped you at home. And remember, use these words as much as, as much as possible. Watch this video over and over again to practice. Remember, practice makes perfect. And guys, like I promised you, here is the link below on my book, How to Improve Your Fluency and Confidence. Guys, I hope you enjoyed the book. Remember, click, um, Click below and you'll have the book for free. I hope you enjoyed it, guys. See you next time. Have you ever bought something thinking it could only do one thing, but then you realize it can actually do a ton of other things too? The present progressive 
or present continuous, however you call it, is the same way. You already probably have heard that the present continuous describes an action that is in progress right now. So for instance, right now I am teaching you the present progressive. Or maybe I am eating something. Or maybe I'm scratching my head. We're talking about an action that is in progress right now. You may have seen a timeline like this. We have the present, and then on the left you have the past, and right you have the future, and the present continuous is right smack in the middle. To make it, you can tell because there's the verb to be, and then there's a verb ing. We're going to use the verb to be in the present. So am, is, or are, and then your verb ing. So for instance, I am speaking. He is running. She is sleeping. It is boiling. Another way to think of this too is if you can add the adverb phrase right now, you can also get this phrase. So for instance, it is boiling right now. He is talking on his phone right now. But there's actually so much more involved with the present continuous based on how you're going to hear native speakers using it. In fact, it might actually even break a couple of rules that you're familiar with. We're going to run through these, and then at the end, we're going to do some practice exercises. The present continuous can also be used to describe an action that is ongoing. They're putting a plan in place over the course of this semester. The present continuous is also used to show an action that happens multiple times, or it's iterative. The phone is ringing. It already rang three times. The door is banging against the wall. Again, like one, two, three. You can also use the present continuous to talk about something that happens in the future. They're showing your favorite movie next week. I'm taking an English class next semester. You can also use present continuous to talk about habits, especially ones that are slightly negative. He's always calling me when I'm trying to work. He's always calling me when I'm trying to work. I'm always cleaning up your messes. I'm always cleaning up your messes. Notice that we use always a lot with this, and it's also a little bit negative. This isn't something I'm very happy about. Now you may have heard of a concept called a stated verb. The big thing to know about these is these verbs usually do not use a continuous form. However, there are times where you can actually use a continuous form. This is especially used to show extra emotion. For instance, the McDonald's campaign, I'm loving it. I'm loving it because I really, really like it. According to the advertising, the course is costing us a lot of money. The course is costing us a lot of money. Normally, you would just say cost, but if you really want to emphasize the price, you can use that present continuous. Another example of a stative situation that goes continuous is when you're describing behavior that has changed. You're being very nice today. That means usually you're not nice, but today you are being nice. You're being very nice today. He's being very annoying. 
He's being very annoying. Normally, he's not annoying, but today, oh my gosh, he won't stop bothering me. To build on that too, you can add some adverbs of time to show that this is a state that's happening right now that's unusual. You're being very talkative today. You're being very talkative today. Normally, you don't talk this much. Continuing with state of verbs becoming progressive, you see this in situations that use constructions like more and more, less and less, faster and faster. He's looking worse and worse every minute. He's looking worse and worse every minute. I'm studying more and more each day. I'm studying more and more each day. You can also use the present continuous to make things sound friendlier while also maintaining some politeness. We're hoping you enjoy your stay. We're hoping you enjoy your stay. We're wishing you and your family a great holiday. We're wishing you and your family a great holiday. Now that we talked about functions, let's talk about how to actually say the present continuous. One way you can do it is by just pronouncing your verb to be. So like, he is going, she is going, it is going, or are, you are going, they are going, I, I am going, I am going. But the reality is when you actually start listening to native speakers talk, you don't actually hear that verb to be very often. Let's look at examples for all of the conjugations of the verb to be. I am becomes I'm. So I'm going to keep saying every. I'm going to tell you about. You are becomes you're. You're going to find father. You're going to remember this talk. He is becomes he's. Imagine what he's going through. He's going to move mountains. She is becomes she's. So she's going to get up from her. She's going to share five. Make it is becomes it's. It's uh, as if it's going to. We are becomes we're. We're going to keep boosting our bill. Or were. And we're going to need to see. So we're going to push her. They are becomes there. They're going to be. Or they're going to. Also know for stress that your subject pronoun and your verb to be usually are not stressed. So whatever comes after with the ing usually has a higher pitch. We're going. We're going to see. He's leaving. He's leaving in like. They're sleeping. When they're sleeping, I think. I'm running. I, I'm running through it. Say this sentence twice. The first time, say it with the verb to be in its full form. The second time, say it contracted. He is going to the park. He's going to the park. They are sleeping at midnight. They're sleeping at midnight. She is not having any. She's not having any. They are not going to help. They're not going to help. Let's do a quick activity. Watch this video and give a description that uses the present continuous. After, we'll show you Example sentences that use the present continuous to describe the picture.
Which one of these functions of the present continuous was new for you? Be sure to let us know. And thank you so much for watching our video. Okay, that's round three. Stay tuned for the judge's final decision. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't miss the judge's decision and our future battles. Click subscribe now. All right, Jennifer, how do you think round three went? Round three, this is fun. I first of all want to say I am amazed, guys, because I can't remember the last time I ever made a video in 24 hours. So the fact that they pulled this off I'm very, very impressed because a lot goes into lesson planning in general, but lesson planning for a video involves planning it out, at least partially writing a script, if not word for word, you have to flesh it out to some extent, and then you film, you don't get it right in the first go all the time, there's going to be multiple takes, they have to edit, upload, it's a process, and the fact that they did this in 24 hours is amazing. So good job, guys, truly. <laughs> I don't know about you. I, I don't churn out videos in 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, um, that was that was amazing. Uh, both of them, I thought, had great video lessons. And Daniel, you know, I really think that his charisma just shines mm -hmm. through on videos. And it's this quality that is really hard to to have. Mm -hmm that he just kind of naturally shows, you know? What Daniel reminds me of is I, I, I've seen this before and it just um, amazes me. I remember I was looking for pictures a long time ago online to use in a video or maybe a lesson. And I came across um, this teacher with students. They're like in a jungle or woods or something. And the teacher was just there out teaching the students. Maybe there was a board or a paper, but they had none of the technology that we have today. It was the teacher giving the knowledge and giving practice, that was their classroom. And it really takes a special kind of person not to have much in the way of tools or resources and to work with what's within and deliver from there. It's all possible. Tools are wonderful. They enhance our teaching, they do. But at the same time, if you were stripped away of all of that, could you still teach? How comfortable would you be? And um, it just Daniel's delivery reminds us that you, you can be very simple and still effective. And what carries that is personality in video. Um, so for Daniel, he has wonderful energy on camera, which is so important. Um, whether you're on camera in the classroom, if there's negative energy, it's really hard to watch even past a minute, right? He carried it straight for um, 10 minutes with the same level energy. So I really appreciate that. Good explanations. Um, very natural delivery. I noted good examples for context, right? He was thinking about the context of teaching these words. So it, the main objective was to teach the pronunciation of them, but he took the time also to explain, which is, again, showing how all these skills are connected, that when you learn vocabulary, it's the meaning, but also how to say it, when to use it, who uses it, in which context. And Daniel had very good awareness of all of that and how all those aspects come together. So good context for each of the condiments. Um, very nice personal touch, which is something I, I greatly appreciate. Um, you know, there's a couple different styles basically that teachers can take it's you know person on screen face on screen give the information versus hey like make a connection let's spend some time together 
and I have something useful to share with you. It's a completely different learning experience, right? And I appreciate that he worked in some personal commentary anecdotes that was not a digression, but it supported his explanation. He's talking about like his travels to Italy or where else he's been. And it engages, which is so important for a 10 minute lesson. Can you hold my interest and make me want to spend those 10 minutes with you? Um, so he's very successful in that. Good job, Daniel, for that. I also noted the number of repetitions, um, which is something I hope teachers are aware of too. When you're teaching something for pronunciation or vocabulary, how many times have you said the word? because they need to hear it. And not just like over and over, like, um, what is, I don't know, salt and pepper, but I forget which one, which one he said, I don't know, like salsa, salsa, you'd say it five times or more. You, multiple repetitions are necessary. The students need multiple exposures to that word to um, for them to clearly understand it and then also take note of the pronunciation. So whether um, the number was intentional or not, I appreciated the repetition of the target word as he worked his way through the list. Um, yeah, I have a couple more comments, but I'll stop there for a moment and see if you agree with that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I absolutely agree with everything you've just said. And um, you know, I just have to throw in play, playing the devil's advocate, right? So um, the quality of the video and audio could be a little bit better. Um, but like you said, like using what you've got, I, I mean, it, it was very natural. Everything was, you point out the repetition in the target words. This was, this was great. I agree with everything that you said. Okay. What I am going to throw out is the list. So if you remember the original challenge, there was a list of um, topics to choose from. So I would say, okay, it was a 10 minute video, which means I totally accept the choice to add on to the list, you know, um, 10 items for a 10 minute video. I think originally there were five, but Originally, the task included completely different ingredients, which I didn't hear. <laughs> the, right. the, um, and I was hoping to hear variations of mayonnaise, like mayo. And do you say syrup or syrup? What is syrup? <laughs> mayonnaise, syrup, um, butter. Are you going to teach a flap tea or not? Uh, mustard and ketchup. So I want to say the original five somehow slipped away. And then sambal came up and I didn't even know it. And I'm like, I do think mayonnaise would have more relevance and yeah. more frequency in this list. It was interesting and I learned something, but again, for the language learner, I think mayonnaise would have been the better choice to insert. So whether he discarded some of the original um, uh, condiments um, or not, that, that's one thing, but um, I wouldn't have scrapped all of them. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And the ones that were in the list were were very relevant, very frequent. Um, Sambal? Yeah, that one I think was more <laughs> him because yeah. where he lives and, and his experience. And then some like, uh, I think he had the example of Worcestershire. <laughs> which I can't say. <laughs> um, which like, you know, you, you're living in Massachusetts. So like there's Worcester the 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 town of the city Worcester of, Shire right and yeah. and yeah I would say Shire I wouldn't say sheer or sure I forget what he said but so like that that one also I feel like most American people and I don't know Avoid it. of course I'm speaking about American English only and he's Australian so I don't know if it's really relevant but most people here wouldn't know like wouldn't pronounce it that way at all and they might say Worcester or Worcester or 
we butcher like it, but we but we know it. We all know it's in this bottle with a paper. We know it we're what it is when we see it on a table. Um, but sambal, we wouldn't know. So strictly speaking from the perspective as an American English speaker, I would, it was interesting, but I would have scrapped sambal from the list and I would have liked to see um, mayonnaise or Worcestershire or whatever it is sauce. And I, I, yeah, to do the research because I, it would have taught me, how do you say it? How should I be saying it? <laughs> so um, if we pivot over to um, Jeff, if I'm impressed by both for having created something within 24 hours, Jeff totally raised the bar with the editing within 24 hours. Oh my gosh. Like I did not expect that level of editing within 24 hours. I was very impressed. Um, I also loved the beginning. Again, not doing something just for frill, but working it in. It was very clever to use the dual purpose bottle opener um, and, and talk about how a structure and grammar can serve more than one purpose. So it was a very clever intro um, with very smooth editing. And I really appreciate that. Um, very engaging in terms of the editing. It was done to, to enhance the lesson and not to just put an icing on the cake, right? Yeah, yeah. His, his video editing abilities really shined here. And Ooh, yeah. So, so that's, you know, the quality of the video, we can see that that was higher here um, and audio. And so, you know, that maybe doesn't play into teaching, but it plays into producing content that is teaching content. So I feel like the better it can be, that has to be worth something too. Um, yeah. And the lighting, yeah. everything, I yeah. mean, he's got it down. Yeah. I, I Things that I'm still after all these years working on. <laughs> I struggle, I admit. Um, I also appreciate from the lesson structure, the scaffolding. And for those who don't understand scaffolding, it's how you build up. You start with simple things and then you get more complex. And so the way that he presented the information um, was done in a way not to overwhelm people initially within the first few minutes, but to start with the familiar and then go from there. So scaffolding was present in the lesson structure. I appreciate that. Um, I also noted in his delivery, it's something that I tried to do um, again. Um, something that we should all be aware of as teachers, especially through video, um, when do we speak more slowly and articulately, and when do we switch back into our everyday speaking, especially at rate, move back into fast speech and reduction, etc. Um, I liked that he had some of that variation. It's often what I've said, and I've picked up the pace over the years myself, but I still defend my choice to slow down especially when it's a grammar explanation. And I feel this is a little complex. I need you to follow along. I will slow down to make this point because I don't want people to struggle with comprehension of what I'm saying in terms of you know sounds and such, um, but the content. Um, so he did have variation of speech, which is a subtle skill to master. And I appreciated that. Um, he had plenty of opportunity to speak naturally, but during critical grammar explanations, he slowed down. And mm -hmm. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I noticed that too. Um, you know, I I thought that they both had a pretty good teacher voice. Yes. But I felt yeah. like Daniel's charisma allowed that to be like very natural. Yes. Uh, whereas 
like the Jeff that we saw in the rounds and the Jeff that we saw in the lesson, of course, they're not going to be the same, but I felt like with Daniel, they were like, that's that. I don't know. There's just this indescribable quality about him that gives him this thing. Um, not that Jeff doesn't have that, but, uh, I just felt like, like I caught the teacher voice in the, in the beginning and it stood out. And so, so like, yeah, the variation stood out because it was kind of set. Whereas in Daniel's video, I felt like from the beginning I was with him or, or something like that. Like it's hard to describe. I, I also feel the, the approach of working with a whiteboard um, set up expectations for this lesson feel um, right. and, and also the, the directions that Daniel was giving was very classroom familiar for those who've studied in a classroom of like repeat after me or let's move on. It was predictable, but in a comfortable way. Yeah. Um, so I, I think overall it was, it was a very comfortable, positive, natural experience overall. So I, I appreciate that. Um, so both are bringing something to the table. One thing I want to call Jeff out for, just like I called out something for Daniel, like, hello, the original list went these five and you scrapped all of them and went <laughs> in your own direction. Um, there's a small typo, actually more than one, you got to be careful. And I know that the time is what prevented this um, from being caught. You're teaching the present continuous or the present progressive, not the present perfect. And on the screen, um, more than once, I believe the present perfect is what was up there, um, which could, oh, you did not, yeah, you got to be careful with those call outs. And I, hey, everyone who uses call outs has done this, even if you're writing on the board, sometimes like you're, you're saying one thing and you're writing a different thing, it comes out, but call outs um, are tricky. Our fingers are typing on the keyboard and your, your attention's focused elsewhere and you don't catch the fact that you use the wrong term. Um, I've also said sometimes, I'm saying like subject plus verb and out of my mouth comes object, but I didn't hear it because I'm already thinking about yeah. where this direction's going. And it's not until even later during editing, I'm like, oh my gosh, what did I just say? Yeah. <laughs> I know, figure out a way to take that out and still make it work. <laughs> or just the disclaimer, sorry, at, you know, time stamped at this, I, I, I misspoke, I apologize. It, you know, I don't have a team catching me um, when I speak on camera. Well, another um, thing I really liked about Jeff's lesson was at the end, the, the exercise. Yes. yes. I thought that was a really cool element to include. And because it is a 10-minute lesson, he did deliver the information that he needed to deliver before that. He had enough time to do that. And I felt like it was really good. It was the full package in the sense he had something to engage. There was um, explanation, examples, and then the practice, um, which within a 10-minute video should be possible. Um, so if, if you look at it from that standpoint, you think the final minute in Daniel's lesson could have been a wrap up, a summary, um, some way to review quickly and integrate uh, the words. I think Daniel made an attempt at the same thing when he like referenced a book, like go get, go check out my book about this or go like moving on to the next resource, putting it into practice. But I felt like Jeff executed it way better uh because he gave the practice and if it was if it were about pitching a product at the end then daniel went right to it but i feel like still jeff could have pitched something at the end of his and it would have come across even better because of the practice yeah 
So um, again, great job for even producing something so quickly, something of quality within 24 hours. Um, both had more strengths and weaknesses. Um, there are things that all teachers can look and applaud and take away and say, oh, that's good. Maybe I need to do more of that, that natural energy. What's your energy level when you teach? Hopefully it's like not off the charts. It doesn't have to be, but you want to bring that positive energy. And remember that whatever tools you select, make them work for you, make them support your lesson. They're not there for frills they're there to support um, what you're doing as a teacher um, there was that yeah I, I don't appreciate seeing a, a typo like that seeing it, that we're teaching one topic and the label on the screen is saying something different but in the grand scheme of things it was a really well-designed lesson Jeff and really well polished, well planned, well delivered. And for that reason, I'm going to go three and two, three for Jeff, two for Daniel. I'm going to do the same three for Jeff and two for Daniel. Okay, let's count the total points. Jeff, fluent American, the flutenant is our champion. Well done, Jeff. And Daniel also gave a great performance. To everyone watching, if you'd like to join Battle English as a challenger or even as a spectator, go to our website, wespeakenglish.com slash battleenglish and discover what battle-ready English looks like. Stay tuned for more Battle English. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't miss the next battle. Thank you to everyone who participated in this battle, and we look forward to seeing you at the next one. Battle English at wespeakenglish.com. Do you agree with the judge's decision? Write a comment under this video and tell us your opinion. Learn more about Battle English at wespeakenglish.com.